Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. On this episode, we have a very special guest. We have Michael Osterlink. Michael is a dear friend of mine, and he is a transpersonal psychologist with over 23 years of experience in marriage and family therapies. Michael is also a resilience coach and has done over a decade of work for the Seal Fit Company, helping people to really cultivate a sense of mental toughness and resilience within themselves on a physical level. So it's safe to say that Michael is an expert in the matters of love and war. He trains his clients to be mentally tough, to be resilient, to really embody that stoic spirit in the workouts they do and in the physical challenges they do. Michael believes in giving people and himself crucibles and voluntary challenges, which is very aligned with the philosophy of stoicism. But Michael is also an expert in the matters of relationships. He is absolutely amazing in this field. He has helped so many couples over multiple decades, and his work leaves a lasting impression with people. I'm really excited to dive into this episode where Michael is going to break down the difference between psychological work and spiritual work and how only doing one actually leaves a lot of things out. And it's important to basically create an integration and a harmony between both the psychological and the spiritual. So I'm really excited for you to get into this episode and listen to what Michael has to say. Well, Michael, I'm super excited to have you on here, man. I know we've uh, we did an episode a while back, and so it's exciting to be back here on the show with you and hearing about your journey and the stuff that you're working on these days. So thank you so much for being on the Zen Stoic Path. Well, thank you for having me here. It's yeah. great to see you. Likewise, man. It's always it's always a good time when we hang out. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah, a lot lot of wisdom exchange, a lot of rascality. You know? <laughs> Definitely <laughs> a lot of rascality. Being a lot of laughing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah. Perfect, man. And some yeah. workouts too. Which yeah, is really cool. exactly. I yeah, I, I so I love that combination that you bring to the table, right? Like the goofy silliness, but also like the disciplined workouts, like that seal fit background, <laughs> as well as you know the you know just the the deep psychological wisdom, the Zen, all of that. And it's something that I wanted to discuss here on the show today, because I know you have a, a background in therapy where you've been working with people for 30 years now. Close. I yeah. mean, like, yeah, it's, it's like almost as long as I've been alive. <laughs> so, so it's great wait, to have you here. does that make me pretty old? <laughs> no, 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 no. It makes you wise and experienced. Wise. Oh, I like that. Yeah. It's better. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I, I know the the type of psychology or the type of therapy um, that you've you've been working in is the uh, transpersonal psychology. So what what is transpersonal psychology? Like what exactly is that and how does it help a person um, through their journey? Yeah, so just for background's sake, licensed in marriage and family therapist. My specialization was transpersonal psychology. We had to study all the other schools of psychology in order to graduate and get licensed and such. And also did postgraduate training in somatic or body psychology, so body, mind, and spirit. So one way to think about transpersonal psychology is that who we think we are, which is supported by our culture, our family of origins, is a construct that's created from conception to the moment we're having this conversation. Like, oh, this is who I am. And the forces that kind of help create my sense of self are my internal dialogue, my physiology, like literally how I drink, how I eat, how I sleep, all those things. My family of origin, like they tell me who I am. My education, you know, um, coaches and teachers, like there's all these forces in our culture that, that help shape you. You think about the shape that expresses in our psychology. And that's just the way these forces do create our personality. Um, and you can, and I take it all the way back to conception because, you know, if you study the work of Stan Groff, a lot of this stuff gets embedded or imprinted in the nervous system 
while you're in the womb. So it's not even just after birth that these things happen, but it starts early on. And that's cool. Like, this is the way it is. Like, that's just how nature has organized ourselves over time in our society. Cool, but that's not who we are at a deep, existential, ontological level. You know, we, we create these uh, maybe masks, one way to think about them, these personalities, these ways of dealing and surviving the world as ways of dealing and surviving the world from real or perceived threats. We have feelings inside ourselves, we perceive threats outside ourselves, and we've learned to organize ourselves to deal with those threats. Great, because we want to survive, but that's our personality, that's our persona, that's the mask that we're transpersonal is through and beyond the personal. So we have this personal expression, which is culturally created, family of origin created, intergenerationally created, cool, but you can transcend that and realize who you are behind that. And the purpose of transpersonal psychology using a wide variety of tools that you've, we've found in cultures all across the world for tens of thousands of years are available to us to tap into and experience our true nature. And that's one of the purposes of transpersonal psychology is to experience our true nature behind the masks. That's so fascinating. This, that the whole idea of like the mask that we create or we co-create with the people around us, yeah. right? We, we co-created in the sense that yes, we have free will, you know, throughout our lives. And that free will is making choices based upon what our parents or our families or our teachers or people in our community have told us who we are or how to be. And so, yes, we're making choices, but we're making choices based upon all of that construct that has been created. So it sounds like the, the transpersonal psychology helps a person to get beyond just what is my individual, you know, persona experience and get into what is the true nature of my being. So is that is that similar to states of being that somebody might find in like a deep meditation? Like what what's the effect of a person discovering or becoming aware of who they are beyond the persona. Yeah, states are interesting. You have states, traits, and stages of consciousness. Mm -hmm. we, we can jump into all those things. Um, so I would say the first inclination that who we are is beyond who we think we are, mostly for most people comes through a state change. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're meditating, they're spontaneously, something occurs when they're in nature, they're in the shower, they're lovemaking, they're doing psychedelics, yoga, uh, sensory deprivation work, you know, the wide variety of tools and practices or things can spontaneously occur where you just have that moment and it could be a moment meaning many moments of many minutes or hours where you just have the realization like I'm not these masks yeah I wear these masks they help me survive in the world but I'm really not these masks I have an essential nature or soul or you know different religious and spiritual systems define it differently but you, you can have that state change away from your usual state your daily consciousness and like oh wait this is who I really am now the challenges with states is they go away. Mm -hmm. So I might have this opening. I'm like, oh my God, I, I can sense a soul level or essential nature or whatever you might call it. And then you go back to your normal ways of being. You're like, oh wait, I have a slight memory. I have an inclination, but I'm back who I was. Okay, cool. That's why over time you want to keep doing these practices. Unless sometimes spontaneously people just awake and they don't, there's, they're, they're done. Like, oh, I'm awake. I'm, it's no longer a state. It's a stage. It's a way of being in the world cool but for most people you have a state change and opening and you want to keep it open you want to keep it open then you want to stabilize it and then it becomes your new normal mm -hmm. but like i said for most people that's a state lasts a short period of time because this is eight mm -hmm. yeah and what do you think it is that uh i either allows a person to 
I consistently do that state change. So consistently get into that state where they are able to see beyond themselves. What allows a person to do that versus a person who gets the state change and then it continuously like turns off or goes back to their normal way of being? Is it is it something that repetition in that particular state of being is required in order to create a new normal? Like how does that work? From my research and experience and working with clients, I'd say it's a couple of different factors that help stabilize a state. So it's no longer just a state, it's a way of being. And that's continuous practice. You know, you might be fortunate, you sit down for your first meditation and you're awake. Cool, most likely that doesn't happen. You know, so you keep meditating, you keep meditating, you keep meditating, and eventually, meditating, <laughs> meditating, <laughs> and eventually becomes stable as a new way of being cool. Or whatever the practices might be, you need to keep practicing them, which is tough for a lot of Westerners, especially Americans, who tend to want like a pill to wake them up or a pill mm -hmm. to fix them or whatever it happens to be, as, like, as opposed to a discipline mm -hmm. where you, you keep doing the same practice over and over and over again. But I also found, too, you need it, you don't need, but it benefits you to have a community. A community for a few different reasons. One, to encourage the practice. One is to help hold you accountable to continue the practice. And a community that helps you interpret the experiences when you wake up. So you don't misinterpret them because you can. And a lot of people in our culture historically, you know, they misinterpret their experience or they interpret it correctly even. And then the culture goes, you're psychotic. Mm. You're mentally put a label. Ill. They put a label on it. Mm -hmm. They give them Thorazine and put them in a mental institute. Um, you know, or whatever might happen to them. So if you have a community of practitioners who understands what you might be going through and then support you through that, you know, because as you know, like you have these state changes, opens up psychological material, comes flooding in. And for many people, they don't have the inner resources to deal with that. Like, you know, like I'm overwhelmed and I feel like I'm in a psychotic break mm. or I'm overwhelmed with, you know, these intense emotions. Like you have Kundalini awakening and just intense emotions or, energies of the physical body just start showing up or you know mm -hmm. you know just weird things inside the body if you don't have people to support you when you're going through that it can it can be overwhelming and it's also kind of points to the fact that like it's really important to do the psychological work mm -hmm. and not just the spiritual work because if you're not psychologically capable of dealing with all this influx of downloads information uh, energetics it can be overwhelming so you know, and uh, one more time, as, as you know, too, like the psychological material can be old stuff from wounds, traumas and stuff that just come back out and want to be fully digested. But if your system's incapable of digesting them, you could re-traumatize yourself. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, building the inner resources, doing the practice, the disciplines and then having a community is so important. Mm -hmm. What would you say the, the major differences between doing the, the psychological work and the spiritual work? Because I find that some like people will talk about and use these terms and they're sometimes using them as like one in the same as like, well, I'm doing this work and it's the spiritual work, but really they may be talking about doing the psychological work. So how do you delineate the two of those things? And um, yeah, like what's the difference between the two of them? That, that's a great, that's a really good question. Um, and my answer would be almost determining who I'm speaking to, mm -hmm. you know, like if I was in Austin, Boulder or, or San Francisco Bay Area, it might be different conversations for different people. That's like the, centers of a lot of the conscious uh -huh. movement over time um but you have very delineated spiritual practices like from religious systems and mm -hmm. you know, yeah. i mean like oh my god there's there's a practice and, you know the buddhist you know, tibetan or zen or or shaolin or very various schools of buddhism um have a multitude of practices that that are spiritual in nature that are intended to 
expand consciousness. And they might not use those terms, expand consciousness, but see the true nature of reality, see the true nature of one's mind. Uh, different different schools have different ways of de de defining that. Um, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, like all every religion has practices, prayer, meditation, chanting, various yogas, psychedelic medicines, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say those are spiritual practices with an intent to change consciousness, but then you have to decide oh, towards what, and then you know, each one would be different. You know, like I said, like in the Buddhist sense, like what's the true nature of mind? What's the true nature of reality? Which, which might be different questions from different cultures. So cool, those are practices. The psychological stuff is necessary, and, and I do make the distinction because if you do those practices, you blow yourself wide open and all the psychological material comes through and out, like it's really hard to deal with. You mm. know, you can literally, I won't say have a psychotic break from meditating, but I'm sure people have really strange experiences, especially they do 10-day retreats. But like, you know, if you don't know how to handle that, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And I found, I've named three communities, mm -hmm. you know, I, I spent time in all three communities. Mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of people will use spiritual practices to bypass the psychological material. Mm -hmm. Oh, if I just do more meditation, if I just do more psychedelics, if I just do whatever, then I don't have to really, like, they don't even think, like, I don't have to deal with it. Like, I've transcended all the human shit. No, you really haven't. Like the human shit is live. I can see the way you treat your wife or your girlfriend or your friends. Like you're still dealing with stuff, right? You might have you might have had some openings and see things differently. Cool. It's not stabilized you in the whole system and you're still acting out of old wounds. So like please do the psychological work mm. while you're doing these spiritual practices. And it might be a value too to begin with the psychological work even before you start doing the spiritual practices. Yeah. To, to deal with like the, the whole human side yeah. of the equation, yeah. which I think is really interesting because what I've noticed a lot in, in our society today is there's a lot of people who they use all of like the spiritual vernacular, the highfalutin terms of like enlightenment and all these things. And yet they haven't done the psychological work. So like you said, you kind of see like maybe how they treat their spouse or maybe how they treat an employee or how they just treat the, you know, the server at the restaurant. It's like they're, yeah, they're yeah, talking yeah, this yeah. big spiritual game. And then all of a sudden they're this, like this, this person where you notice this incongruency. Yeah, yeah. And, and like the, the bigger that, you know, chasm is between, you know, their, their spiritual and their psychological development, the more incongruency and the more blind spot there ends up being in that yeah. equation. Yeah, and I'd even add themselves to that mm -hmm. list, like how, like how they treat their spouses, their friends, their coworkers. Like, yeah, they're the server at the restaurant, the barista, et cetera, et cetera. But also, like, watch them how they treat themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, because you know, if they're doing spiritual practices to open the heart to be more caring, compassionate, loving, cool. Are they caring, compassionate, loving to themselves, mm -hmm. as well as to their spouse and all these other people we just talked about? And you can be more inclusive and expansive and say, like, how do they treat the earth? Mm -hmm. as a complex adaptive system mm -hmm. you know like those are questions and we've had this conversation before it's like i love mental masturbation <laughs> like, <laughs> smelling your own farts if you will <laughs> yes i love smelling my own farts i love talking about all this stuff yeah, yeah exactly like enlightenment and yeah. all that stuff state stages traits and blah 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 and it's like the ultimate question for me you just brought up is like how do you treat yourself and other human beings mm -hmm. that's like the more important to me working with clients than like they ha they know stuff. Mm -hmm. oh, great. I'm glad you know like the eight stages of this or the 12 stages of this or the structure of the that. Cool. How do you treat fellow human beings? How do you treat yourself? Mm -hmm. I, I think that's one of the most important things, especially because I know you and I both like share a lot of like, uh, you know, 
I would say an, an interest and a passion for Zen, right? Mm-hmm. For, for understanding Zen. And there's one of my favorite stories, you know, that that's a Zen you know, parable is the story of the two monks in the river. Yep. And how, you know, one is this older monk, one is the younger monk. And the younger monk is like all about perfection and like doing everything perfect. And he, you know, takes the vow of celibacy. And the older monk also has taken this vow of celibacy. But the older monk is more about, you know, just being a human being. As, a, as in Zen, they talk about how, you know, or at least Alan Watts would talk about, he said, to be perfect, to be Zen is to be perfectly and simply human. Mm-hmm. Or as Dojin Zenji said, right, to study Zen is to study the self. And right? mm-hmm. to, to study the self is to forget the self, which is, you know, speaks a lot to how we might treat people. But these two monks are on their adventure and they approach this river in between towns. And there's this woman with this beautiful silk dress who cannot get across without destroying her dress. So the older monk gestures, you know, to this woman. She accepts and he picks her up and carries her across the river, puts her down. And the monks, you know, they go on their merry way. And then hours later, the younger monk is, you know, stressed out, disgruntled. And he's like, I, I can't believe you picked up that woman. <laughs> you know, like we, we took a vow of celibacy not to even look a woman in the eye. And yet you picked her up and you carried her. How do you reconcile that? He said, well, I put her down at the river. Like, why are you still carrying her? <laughs> I, I love that story. Yeah. And I want to highlight, I want to compliment you on your storytelling. <laughs> I've, you. I've, been, no, I've been to classes yeah. where you've taught. Yeah. And I've been to like conferences where you spoke and you do a great job telling these stories. Yeah, I like them. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I mean, that story, like, I love that one, mm-hmm. especially because, I mean, that story has been responsible for more breakthroughs with clients mm-hmm. than I think any other story that I've ever wow. used in coaching. And it, because a lot of the, the, the problems that somebody's experiencing is a result of being attached to a thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, you know, in, in Buddhism, the second noble truth is that the root of attachment or, or the, yeah, suffer, the root of suffering is attachment. Mm-hmm. And what I find really interesting about that is that we never really think about well, attached to what exactly when we're hearing that second noble truth. And it's usually attachment to a thought, uh, mm-hmm. something of the mind, so to speak. And so in that story, one of the reasons why I really love it and why it's, you know, what you're saying is really speaking to me about, you know, taking care of the psychological part, the human part, is that in that story, the younger monk, he has this really, you know, strict disciplined practice about like how to be enlightened and how to be the perfect Zen monk. And yet the older monk is focusing more upon his own humanity, like the perfection of his own humanity and loving, like what is in in his reality, so to speak. And I think what's, what's fascinating about that is that when we try to get all high and mighty by just doing the spiritual side and not the psychological side, then the way that we treat ourselves and others ultimately suffers. Yeah. Yeah. And I love to speak to the attachment, but mm-hmm. not necessarily from the Buddhist perspective, not because I agree with that, mm-hmm. you know, the Four Noble Truths. However, um, one thing I've discovered myself for sure, but in other people on the spiritual path, is like for, I'll just give myself an example. I, I shared with you, with you not too long ago that um, a couple of years ago I decided to deconstruct my witness. Mm-hmm. I've been meditating since 1979 or so. Mm-hmm. And I've done it like I have this great capacity to see everything. Like, my thoughts are clouds in the sky and mm-hmm. sensations and feelings and stuff. But I was able to to make such a distance between me and my experience that I was able to disidentify from my experience and use it as a spiritual bypass of sorts. Mm. Oh, I don't need to feel that. That's below me. Well, that's in my body. I don't need to think that that's below me. Like, oh, shit, no. 
like I'm actually bypassing the human experience almost by meditating too much mm -hmm. in, in a sense. So like two years ago, I'm like, I'm going to stop that depth of meditation. I'm going to do different types of meditation, more about getting inside the body as opposed to creating the distance and the witness to it. Um, and it was really helpful because I was like, I, I saw how bypassing I was like, and that required me to like start feeling things and, and not feeling things from a, like a witness, but like feeling things as a first person. And eventually, and actually a couple of weeks ago, I started going back to that depth, depth of meditation because I spent enough time, I think, feeling stuff that I'm not going to hopefully not feel any things anymore. But, you know, so I want to integrate the two, like what I call the ascending path of transcending the human and the ascending path into the human or the body, integrate those two. But I find, and this is where the somatic stuff comes in, that a lot of people, myself included, um, in the spiritual community, especially with the medicine work, use it to bypass their experiences, mm -hmm. you know, um, their human experience. I, you know, we didn't, I don't think we incarnated here to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think we incarnated as human beings to have the human experience like you just shared with the monk. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I agree completely. And it's, it's one of the central themes or the central frameworks of Zen Stoic philosophy. It's Zen Stoic philosophy is about being perfectly and simply human and being intentional in your human experience yeah. and your humanity, so to speak. And, you know, we talked about this in the, the last training that we were a part of where I talked about the intentions and delusions yeah, yeah, yeah. and to be intentional is to engage with life. You know, being the meta purpose of our incarnation here is to live, to live, to live our lives as simple as, as that. And then our free will, you know, populates all the meaning and the, the story that we experience in that, that life. And the delusion is to disengage with life, to somehow try to bypass the experience and bypassing one of those five fundamental experiences, right. right? The feeling, the thinking, the doing, the expressing, and the being. And anytime we try to not do one of those things that we try to not feel, for instance, and instead of feeling, we go into the being because we, we hear, oh, meditation is the way to go. And that's how you, you move through your stuff. Meanwhile, you're not letting yourself feel any of the somatics or bypassing the human experience entirely or disengaging from it. Um, so I think that's, it's really fascinating that you've gotten to have that dichotomy of experience. Yeah. 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 And speaking of our training, uh, a, a distinction that I was able to make at the training, um, and that's really powerful for me because ever since I was a little kid, I've been able to access non-ordinary non states really easily. Mm -hmm. Like I just like that. I don't, I don't need medicine. I just, I, I can access them. Like I used to meditate as a kid and go like fly above myself and watch myself sitting on the floor meditating, you know, that kind of stuff astral projection, all kinds of weird ass shit, <laughs> you know, which is cool. Um, and, but I, I, the distinction I was able to make is uh, distinction, make a distinction between that, which is like a skill that I can download information, have access to information and disassociate. Mm -hmm. Cause I was like, there are, I, you know, since I was a kid, I, I can also disassociate because of the trauma stuff. And like, that's my tool. Like, ah, shit, I need to get the fuck out. Cause I can't handle that, that moment. What was going on? my life or inside my body boom i'm gone and making those distinctions are really helpful because what i was able to do is say this the non-ordinary states is like a gift from god cool i want to keep playing in this space this is a survival mechanism that i don't want it to have anymore so i made myself a commitment like anytime i notice that i start checking out not in non-ordinary states but like this is disassociate i call myself back in and the, my commitment to myself is i'm going to experience whatever the fuck is going on mm -hmm despite any fears that I have. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing more and more of that. So that's kind of really fascinating 
thank you for the class, like <laughs> to make those distinctions because it's been really helpful for me too. That's amazing, man. I'm I'm really glad that you're getting to have that experience yeah. and what what impact has it had on you to like experience whatever is coming up to like really let yourself just be with it. Well, it's really funny <laughs> is um, the insight that I had not too long, a couple of days ago, actually with our mutual friends was that by contracting against and disassociating and checking out, um, I understand where it came from and I understand why I did it, but it actually leaves me. Um, I, I, I don't want to use the word weak in a pejorative way, but it's, it's a weak positioning for myself because uh, when I do sit in it fully and allow all the stuff to come up, it's fine. It's almost like this becomes a thing independent of the situation, like the checking out and the contractions becomes its own thing. When I stop doing that, and I'm, and I'm not perfect with this, but when I just allow to emerge whatever emerges, I'm not overwhelmed. Like my body is strong as fuck. It can handle it. Mm. And I don't contract. And it processes out of my system really quickly. I think for a long time, I learned to do that. And the fear drove more of that action than the actual thing that was going on. So I was like, wow. And it comes back to like a martial arts because I know you and I have a share of that in common. It's like I saw the power of being able to sit fully in the experience, you know, kind of the warrior position. Because when I contract, you're no longer the warrior. You're like the warrior, like a warrior, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, and you're incapable, you know, at least for me, I'm incapable of dealing with whatever it was. But like standing strong, dealing with it, sitting like in that, in the fire, but from a very centered place. It doesn't get locked in the body. It doesn't get trapped. It doesn't become chronic illness on the road or stuff that comes up sideways. It's just like it comes through, processes, and fucking sucks sometimes, but it's gone. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay, I can handle that. So like the capacity inside myself is a lot greater than what I thought it was. That's that's really an important and insightful uh, lesson that you've experienced Mm -hmm. with all that. The that the problem was never the feeling that you were contracting against. It was the contraction itself. Yeah. The making it wrong. Yeah. yeah in some, yeah. in some form or fashion. Yeah. yeah. Which is just, holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that, that's, that's incredible. What impact has your experience of like allowing these feelings to come through and actually fully embracing them versus contracting with them? What impact has that had on the somatic work that you do with, with clients or like your understanding of the somatic work? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I try to eat my own dog food, mm-hmm. you know, so I try to live what I teach, but you know, I'm a human being and I don't always do so well. And I've always worked with people to like, okay, sit with your own experience, allow it to emerge. And I knew what that meant, but now I even like over the, more recent time like i really know what that means mm-hmm. like i had the f- primary first person experience of like what that is what and it's a cognitive thing it's an emotional thing it's an energetic thing it's a physiological thing and i think it just gives me much greater compassion and care for my clients but also insight to watch them and get a sense like oh are you really allowing are you really letting go are you really allowing the fullness of the experience to come through because Everyone's different, but I can kind of watch like, oh, okay, you, you claim to be allowing the process to come through the human system, but I notice you're holding your breath. Okay, cool. So it just gives you more insight or some tightness in the jaw or collapse of the shoulders, you know, whatever the, however the posture is affected and contracts against. I notice more subtly of that stuff because I notice myself more subtly like, oh, okay, I'm not doing it as fully as I was, but there's still some contraction. That's really interesting. 
So it gives me more awareness of what's happening inside of me. So it gives me more awareness of happening inside of them or couples. Like if I work with a couple, I'm just, I seem to be more attuned to their energetics and somatics than I was, than I was, than I was, than I was getting better at that. Beautiful. Yeah. As you go there, you have the capacity to bring other people where you've already been, right? Like by walking the talk, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and we, we, like we, t- we talk about that. You can only take your client as far as you're capable of going, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Oh, I better go further. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause I really want to help my clients. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, you know, we, we briefly touched on this idea of being a warrior and, mm-hmm. you know, our background in martial arts. Cause I know there's, there's another segment to your ethos in life and like everything that you do. And a lot of it um, is inspired by the martial arts, by the seal fit stuff. So, I, I would love to hear more about, you know, your perspective on suppose training the warrior within right through martial arts, through the seal fit stuff, all that stuff. Like, how did you get into that side of things? Cause you were very Zen, right? You're meditating as a kid, <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. getting into these, these altered states. What inspired you to go into like the martial arts into the, the more, you know, uh, tough fitness things that you, you experience? Yeah. So I was fortunate. I had a, a therapist, mm-hmm. Um, who taught me, I've, we've talked about this biofeedback, guided imagery, meditation and stuff, but she also encouraged the martial arts. So I got into Taekwondo, which is required by law for our, every kid, nine years old and mm-hmm. where I lived. So I got in, into Taekwondo. Um, and I was for, and I think a couple different things. I was fortunate because I had really good instructors and the instructors were not just like, there was a meditative warrior type feel to the training. It wasn't just get a new belt, get a new belt, get a new belt. Like I just had really good uh, instructors. So that was part of it. But also I, like I grew up watching Bruce Lee, you know, and the, and the heroes we had on our television shows and our movies and stuff were, you know, very warrior like, I mean, they're TV shows and everything, but you're a kid and you read comic books and you watch Kung Fu, David Carradine, you watch Bruce Lee movies. You're like, I'm just, and I did this every day. Like, you know, I, I'd watch enter the dragon every day for years and years and years and i'd be in the basement and i'd meditate not while i was watching bruce lee but i'd meditate and then i'd train with the, with one of mostly enter the dragon in the background but some of the other bruce lee movies but as i got older um i was fortunate for a couple different things born and raised in virginia northern virginia dc most of our neighbors were military law enforcement intelligence agents you know agency and stuff like that so i was just kind of surrounded by that kind of way of being in the world which is awesome and then you know, I just got introduced to new martial arts over the time. And each martial art was like a door opening to a different aspect of the warrior tradition. Um, and eventually the last, the last two I trained in, well, the last the one we're training in now is Krav Maga, which is less of the warrior tradition from the Eastern perspective because it's, it's a really combat art. But it's, it's like, you know, very offensive, very frontside focused, very attacking. Um, and that balanced with some of the Eastern, more philosophical traditions, which I studied was really helpful. And then I can speak to the seal fit thing in a moment. Yeah. But, but yeah. yeah, I just, I just love the martial yeah, arts. Yeah. I mean, you and I share that, right? We're kindred spirits in that yeah. way. Cause Bruce Lee was my first ever hero yeah. role model from when I was like three years old. And, awesome. and I was just like, just riveted by this man, especially like watching, you know, enter the dragon and stuff when I was a kid. And I know there, there's a there's a quote from that movie that you and I always like recite to each other, which is, you know, the it's like a finger pointing to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you'll miss the heavenly glory, which is that whole aspect in Zen. Like the yeah. finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. Yeah. And I, I'm just very curious before we dive into more warrior stuff. 
what is your perspective on that quote and like the importance or like the notion of how the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon? Yeah, I'm going to say something very controversial and I'll make it more religious as opposed to just a Bruce Lee statement. There's a book I read called If You See the Buddha on the Road, Slay Him. Mm-hmm. And there's a similar concept in Christianity, but it's not very popular. That's why it's like would be probably uh, worried about this, what I'm about to say. But like if you focus on Jesus, if you focus on the Buddha, you're missing their teachings. You're, you're focusing on the finger, not what it's pointing at. Uh, and, and so you're getting caught in concepts and ideas as opposed to primary religious experiences of changing your conscience, opening your heart, being more caring, loving, and compassionate. You know, then you're just doing rituals and rote learning and ideas and concepts, which is fine, cool, but that's not what they're pointing to. They're pointing to how you can, how you can show up differently in the world in a more loving, caring way, or whatever the message is for the particular teachers mm-hmm. or incarnate, incarnations of God or whatever you want to say. Um, so I'll tell you like that. It's like, I love the martial arts and I'll, you know, I'll circle back to the martial arts. I love the martial arts. I love the physical training. I like the sparring. I love all that stuff. But that misses the point if that's all I was connected to. Mm-hmm. It's a higher spiritual practices that the martial arts leads you to that I think are ultimately more important. Um, so yeah, let's spar, let's work out, let's do cool stuff. Awesome. But like, it's more of it's more of like character development, Fudoshin. It's like equanimity, the heart, the the unmovable heart. Like how you can show up in a really powerful, loving, caring way, straight, powerful, loving, um, and be of service in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about kicking someone's ass or whatever it is. You know, um, I think that's the higher calling of all the martial arts. Agreed. And I love the kind of lower calling of all the martial arts too. You know? Yeah. I, I love that you brought that up with the, um, the slay, the Buddha is that's, that's one of the things that talks about in Zen that a lot of people, they will hear that and they'll either delete the sort of generalize it. It'll go over their heads. Like, what do you mean? Like, that sounds crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I love the fact that you, you pointed to that and you shared that because when it comes to that idea the whole Buddha or deity being outside of you that you worship and pray to, it ultimately prevents a person from seeing the nature of that in themselves yeah, or from embracing the nature of that in themselves. If you see it outside of you, you're technically seeing yourself and everything and everyone anyway, but you have to, (laughs) that's a whole rabbit hole. (laughs) But, but the idea is like, if we're, if we're constantly putting our sovereignty or our power outside of ourselves into something that we are worshiping, um, like, which is one of the reasons why in Zen they talk about how, you know, the worshiping of the Buddha is not, you know, it, it takes you away from your own Buddha nature and the realization of that within yourself and to bring that, that focus and attention back in. And I think there's a really powerful tie with that idea and with the martial arts. And one of the things that Bruce Lee would talk about is how the martial arts is to develop yourself beyond your limits, not just your physical limits, but your mental, your emotional, your psychological limits and how the martial arts allows you to have a total and complete expression of the self that is consistently evolving, which is one of the reasons that I also love it so much. I love that, and I completely agree. And another word you can throw in is character, like character development, mm-hmm. how you show up in the world. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think, unfortunately, it's missing. I mean, people can study the word traditions, that's which is awesome. But as a culture, mm-hmm. it's hard to find kind of character development, honor, integrity, trust, you know, those kind of things expressed in a system 
outside of the martial arts or the military or the law enforcement, you know, and it's not necessarily done perfectly in all those different places, but as a culture, like we don't have those things, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I think it's interesting, especially with regards to like, like for me, I've trained Taekwondo as well. That was my first martial arts <laughs> uh, when I was a kid. Nice. Um, and I've done various martial arts through the years, you know, kickboxing, uh, wrestling, capoeira. Now, that's right. Uh, my, my main thing is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And one thing that I love about Brazilian jiu-jitsu from like a character development standpoint and also just a humility standpoint, mm. right? It really brings you back into the humanness of who you are because in something like jiu-jitsu, anybody who has trained jiu-jitsu can attest to this. When you're training jujitsu and you're rolling on the mat and you get beat or you get tapped out or you get thrown or you get swept or whatever, whatever ends up happening, your currency on the mat is your currency on the mat. So how you're showing up right now in this moment mm-hmm. on the mat, like there is no faking it. And That's however great. you show yeah. up is how you show up and it's giving you the feedback. Now, when this happens, like for example, like throughout my career in Brazilian jujitsu, like I'm a brown belt now and... I've had experiences while being an upper belt, like a purple belt or even a brown belt of getting tapped out by a lower belt Mm -hmm. or, you know, tapped out by somebody that I, I perceive to myself that I should be able to beat. And then when that happens, I start getting those negative self-talk thoughts Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I should be better than this. So I should, I should, I should, I should, or I'm not good or whatever thought might come to mind. If only I was, you know, stronger or heavier or taller, any of those thoughts that were in me as a child that are not any different than how I was when I was a kid, when I had all my insecurities suddenly bubbling up because they're being triggered like by this martial arts experience that I'm having. And I think what's fascinating about that is that what this, what the mat is doing for me is it's giving me like a psychological mirror to see what's still there. And so like, yes, I get to train in the skill I have the self-discipline, the integrity, but you also develop the humility, right? You know, you get your ass kicked <laughs> by somebody and you're like, shit, <laughs> maybe I'm like, maybe I've inflated my ego too much. <laughs> maybe I need to chill out. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, right? Because yeah. I think it's interesting because I've, you know, I've spoken just, I've spoken to people who've done martial arts and anytime I, I run into somebody who has wrestled or who has done jujitsu or who has done uh, kickboxing or, or any kind of self-defense art where they've really like put a lot of work and training into it, there's just a, a different essence and uh, a respect for the, you know, their fellow human being mm-hmm. in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, like we realize the, I mean, the, the sensitivity of our organism because we've been in experiences where we were playing out and sparring in martial arts that were like, oh, wow, like I could get hurt. Like this is, it gives you a much better appreciation, which is why you, you notice that for the most part, anytime there's like a bar fight or something, like it's very rare that it's a martial artist mm-hmm, who's mm-hmm, getting in that fight mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. even George St. Pierre, right, one of the greatest fighters of all time would say that he's terrified to get into a bar fight because like, you just don't know what's going to happen. And even though he's the best, Mm -hmm. even he has this reverence for the sensitivity of the, or of the human organism and being like, Hey, like, yes, I've trained. And there's this humility that exists that I think is something that is, I, I find to be one of the most valuable things that martial arts has given me is that sense of humility and appreciation for just being able to, connect with each other and know how to fight, but not have to use it. Yeah. Yeah. Might for right. Junior would say yeah. having lost a, fr- a friend of mine was killed in a bar fight, um, in the 92, 
91, 92. So I'm sensitive anyways to shit. Like you just don't know when someone's life could be taken. Like, mm-hmm. like yeah, it's probably better not to fight. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The guy pulled, they fought. He won. My friend won. The guy went out to the street, pulled a gun, came back and killed him. Right. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And that training gives you the reverence for that type of reality. Like yeah. It, it's like the whole stoic for uh, stoic concept, uh, the memento mori, right? The yeah, remembering yeah. and meditating upon your own mortality to essentially just have a sense of appreciation and <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not to not to fight for the sake of fighting. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, just, I was reminded of a um, voicemail I left you mm-hmm. a couple months ago of how I was playing around with being choked in Krav, mm-hmm. you know, as a tool for self reflection on not being able to breathe because I have asthma. I was like, wait, what a great opportunity mm-hmm. for self-reflection. Like, Oh, do that a little bit tighter longer. Mm-hmm. Cause I just want to see like where my mind goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <gasps> what thoughts get brought up like, yeah, in these situations. Yeah. Like, and then and the panic kicks in mm-hmm. like, wow, of course I don't want to panic. It, mm-hmm. it, my body does cause it's under f- seemingly physical threat. Mm-hmm. And that's where I can intervene and, and, you know, change my mind and stuff like that. But I don't know that. Mm-hmm. unless I'm practicing that I'm in that situation. It was great. I'm like, it wasn't fun, but I'm like, I want to do that again. Cause I just want to get a sense of like, like what physiological things kick off when I'm, when I feel like I'm being choked out. Mm. Shit. Yeah. What thoughts are coming up and yeah. what, what's still there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like we, when we feel pressure or we uh, have experiences of exhaustion or when we again our environment like that's why i think cold plungers and saunas are so important <laughs> for for you know to be able to, yeah. to give yourself that experience because mm-hmm. it's like life will squeeze you in situations mm-hmm. and things that'll come up and if you practice in essence being squeezed <laughs> like yeah, yeah, putting yeah. yourself in challenging yeah, yeah. situations crucibles. yeah crucibles or in stoicism they call it voluntary discomfort okay, are you cool. doing this type of thing you're you're basically giving yourself an opportunity to allow those unresolved psychological things to come up because right. they're going to come up in the form of thoughts, even though like you're doing this with your body, you're not just building like toughness and resilience, so to speak, but you're also giving yourself uh, an opportunity to examine what's there. Well, that reminds me of when we did the, the, the cold plunge mm-hmm. at the first retreat we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, I can do that. You know, and Keith and Ariel, or, or I think my I mean, Keith was like, so, or someone might have said to me, "Don't don't mental tough way your don't mental tough your way through it. Mm-hmm. Just sit with it." I'm like, "Oh shit, okay, I'll try mm-hmm. that." Completely different experience. Completely different. Because I've been I've been trained to like, oh, yeah, like yeah, exactly. Effort you know, through seal fit. Like, mm-hmm. and it's like no, like the higher order thing is just like just allow and feel mm-hmm. whatever comes up, cool, mm-hmm. as opposed to tough your way through it. Yeah, that was, it yeah, was it, a great experience. It is, it is, and it, it speaks to what you were talking about earlier about that whole idea of when your mental toughing, toughnessing. <laughs> that's even a verb. <laughs> if you're if you're using mental toughness to get through a tough tough experience, so to speak, you're doing that contraction. It's a contraction. Yeah, yeah. you're contracting to the stress versus embracing whatever the feelings are that yeah. are coming through. And if you embrace them, the feelings subside; they pass. Yeah, it reminds me. I um, I was at uh, Jesse's boy's uh, uh, birthday party, and I a mutual friend introduced me to a martial artist. He's Sambo, the mm-hmm. Russian martial art. And there, and so we, he and I fought for like two hours outside. Mm-hmm. It's the craziest fucking thing at a birthday party, but we did. <laughs> um, and it's fascinating because what I learned from him is is like they just they're open and they can take the punch. Me, my first thing is like I'm going to contract against the punch so it doesn't hurt as much, mm-hmm. right? 
and like it still hurts but like okay cool and he just sat there like this and and, and the way he explained it to me is like it hits and it spreads through the whole system mm-hmm. so it, it, it's um it's less damaging if i contract against it it's it's pinpointed and it's mm-hmm. more damaging I'm like what a great concept psychologically because it fits with what i just said um in terms of like you know allowing versus contracting it's like oh wow and that just struck me i was like wow i I learned the lesson physically a couple months ago, but I learned it a couple of days ago, like really deeply. Like that is so true. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And yeah, I, I didn't realize, so even until this conversation, I didn't realize some of the, like the psychological relevancy that martial arts and fitness has had in my life until we started oh, nice, talking about nice, it like nice. this. Yeah. This is really interesting. So I've not like expressed this before, um, or at least even thought about I'm like, Oh, what's this really doing for me beyond just like the practicing of the martial arts. So I think it's, I think it's really cool that a lot of the way that you've built yourself up to be has come from all these various different practices and you've included your body in the equation, not just your mind, right? You're not just an academic or yeah, yeah, intellectual, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, you yeah, brought yeah. in, you know, the physical elements of things, the, the combat elements of things, which is something that as human beings, you know, we've been doing for thousands of years forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And to be able to practice that and to know and be self-assured through that that process I think is really important. It's the whole, it's the whole essence of Zen stoic philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's about being the warrior in the garden versus the gardener in the war. Yeah. 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 And it's, I, I love, I really love that symbology of the warrior in the garden because the warrior in the garden, I think is twofold. I think when most people hear that story about how, you know, the, I'll, I'll tell it for anybody who hasn't heard it because I, I know I tell this on my podcast a lot, but sometimes, you know, maybe they haven't heard it. So I'll, I'll share it. So basically there's a samurai master with his student and on their day off, they're walking through the garden and the master's talking about how important it is to live a life of peace and tranquility and to make sure that you appreciate the beauty in the world. And the student's like, dude, you just taught me how to like destroy my enemy in battle yesterday. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> He's like, and the, and he goes, wouldn't it be better if I just, you know, tended to the plants in the garden? And the master said, well, it would be a more peaceful life. Yes but it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's, it's a really powerful like symbolism in that because there is the warrior side of things and there's the garden and the warrior is like ourselves building ourselves up mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically to be able to be more resourced to deal with the uncertainties of yeah. life, the inevitable storms that will come mm-hmm. just through throughout our lives. And then the garden is everything that we care for. It's all yeah. the beauty, all the yeah, things yeah. that you know are worth living for. It's like it's the things that we love, the things that we're grateful for. Sweetness of life. The sweetness of life. We yes. talked about this morning. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that this morning yeah. as well. And yeah. that that sweetness of life is is what makes life worth living. And mm. the ability to protect that sweetness or protect that beauty is also a very strong position for for a person to be in mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. I completely agree. And that's why I've got to try to balance out kind of the, the tactical trainings and other such things we could talk about if you want that I've done with like heart opening, caring, compassion type of things. Mm -hmm. So I'm operating from a, if I have to do anything, whether it's physical violence or, or just holding a space for another human being that needs that space holding, I'm capable of doing, but I'm operating from a, good heartfelt mm. soulful place mm-hmm. not from an ego place yeah or, you and know, that's the foundation needs yeah yeah 
Yeah. I, I really like that a lot. So I'm, I'm curious, like you've, you've been doing these trainings lately, right? Learning different coaching modalities, like things that we've participated in yeah, together. Yeah. And yeah, I know it's influenced the work that you do with people. So what are you, what are you most excited about right now in the work that you're doing? Uh, it's a great question. And it's gonna be funny because probably what I answer now will be different from a month from now or six months <laughs> from now. Cause I'm really in, in a discovery process an unfolding process having been on the road for like nine months and kind of figuring these things out and figuring things out is not, I, that's even a bad term because I'm not, it's not a mental thing. Mm. That's what I'm trying to not do as much. Like, oh, I can figure this out. I can, figure this out. <laughs> I can analyze it to death. Like, no, presently, <laughs> so I'll put it that way. Having done the training that we just finished uh, psyche tech two. Mm. Um, and we do these seven, eight hour sessions with a client. Mm. I'm like, wow, that was so cool. Now I'm used to doing long sessions with the client under certain very particular circumstances, medicine. Um, but I'm not non-medicine sessions I haven't done. Like I've drawn groups for like multiple days in a row, but I've never worked with an individual for like seven, eight hours. That's not medicine related. So like, so that was so cool. And I was nervous and like, do I have, what can I do for eight hours? Mm -hmm. And you know, all these questions, insecurities came up and able to work through them. And Keith and Errol and you actually were really helpful on those lines. So cool. <laughs> and I uh, got through it and I'm like, wow. It, it just challenged my whole paradigm as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you do an hour every week or every, every other week, whatever the, the structure is of therapy or even coaching. I'm like, ah, no, I've turned my whole life upside down. I'm shaking it this this year. I'm going to shake that too. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't say it, the thinking again, I feel mm -hmm. <laughs> that part of the exploration and possible the manifestation of this stuff is to do more of the intense stuff. Like, hey, let's do one or two or three day sessions with clients. And you do pre and post because you got to do, got to get to know them, make them feel comfortable with you, understand their outcomes that they want. And then you also, you know, want to integrate so you can do that kind of work. So I'm looking at like completely breaking apart how I've done things for almost 30 years and doing more intense type work. And I want to do more in person type work, the intense in person kind of work. And as we've been talking, and this hasn't flushed out completely, I want to do more outdoor adventure type coaching using the outdoor and opportunities to do stuff outdoors, adventure type stuff as a means for psycho-spiritual growth and physical growth as well. Um, Cause I haven't worked for SailFit, you know, for a decade and doing all kinds of really crazy ass shit outside. I, and I've seen the benefit of like f hard physical challenges. Now, I not necessarily want all my clients to go do a corporal camp, or anything like mm -hmm. that. Although if they want to, we, I work on that with them, mm -hmm. but like, you know, how, how can we put them as an individual or a small group or a couple in really interesting situations in nature that challenges them as a whole human being and allows them to grow in uh, like uh, uh, intensely, like in a shorter period of time, as opposed to an hour every week for uh, six months or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm playing around with those kind of things. That's where they, where they land. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. I like the you're using a lot of the things that inspire you naturally to mm -hmm. also create experiences for your clients to give them the opportunity to not just do this inner work, you know, sitting in, in a chair in an office or something like that, but, you know, by having a whole experience that goes with it, the one that encompasses nature and, and the elements. So yeah, to yeah, speak. Yeah, yeah. So, um, if, if people are interested in doing something like that, where can people find you? What's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they're looking to have that, that type of experience? Um, a website, Michael D Ostrolink, O S T R O L E N K dot com. Um, a new one's coming out here in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So like by the time people watch this, mm -hmm. uh, the new website will be up. 
and it starts having more of what we just talked about, the, these intensives, mm-hmm. some of the adventure coaching will be referenced on there. My work with couples, my work with groups, my work with individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, so, yeah, you can reach me there. And I'd be curious, like, yeah, you and I, oh, we talk all the time anyways, but like six months, six months from now or a year from now, what's this actually look like as yeah. it continues to unfold? I don't know. And I don't want to lock that into place. I want to see what kind of organically emerges mm-hmm. as I have these conversations with clients and see what they want to do in terms of playing and trying new things out. Amazing. Yeah. I love that. And so my, my last question for you before we wrap up is what does it mean to you to live a liberated life? So, um, the way I look at it is it's a iterative process. Like you, you can free yourself and then free yourself and then free yourself. You can liberate yourself from cultural intergenerational familiar programming. But I, I don't know that and my name of my program is emerging human, that there's a final end point. Like, you know, in the spiritual sense, yes, you can find your true nature and, and no mind or all those kind of thin things, right? Cool. But I'm talking more in the human space. That's a, it's an iterative process that you free yourself and you live your life and then you realize there's still some restrictions, still some contractions, still some limitations of your thinking. And then you, okay, I want to liberate myself from that. I want to free myself off from that. Cool. And then you get in a new relationship. You're like, holy moly, I just ran into myself in a completely new way. There's so much more to work on, or you go home for Christmas or Hanukkah or any of the holidays, and you're spending time with your parents. You're like, oh shit, okay. There's <laughs> even more stuff to work on. So, like, liberation for me is like I, you can have an intense experience and liberate yourself amazingly well from a lot of stuff, but I still think like you're still going to run into yourself over time. Um, that's why these practices are so important. Like, you know, someone doing a liberation session with you is awesome. And I could imagine, like, you still have to go do practices after that, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's meditation or guided me- imagery or whatever you have your clients do or stuff that I would have clients do. It's like, you still have to do the practices because I still think you're going to run into yourself mm-hmm. over and over again. And it'd be probably, you know, less painful, less suffering. You've done a lot of great work, but you're still there. Mm-hmm. Your human is still there. Your human is still there. And it's not just you. Like, you have this, these inputs intergenerationally, religiously, culturally, academically, familially, all these things like inside of you that, you know, you ultimately you want to work through over time. Mm-hmm. It just takes time. It just takes time. Yeah. yeah. It's like that combination of inner and outer work. And yeah. yeah. Making sure that you're honoring the human, not just trying to ascend, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. far yeah. away. Yeah. I always like to say, you know, uh, for those who t- attempt to bypass the psychological human side of things and only the spiritual stuff and, have this ascension I'm like stop trying to not be here right now it's <laughs> not very spiritual of you. <laughs> that's true be right? here now listen to ram das <laughs> exactly yeah just it, it embrace the human experience yeah. and um and i'm really excited to see how you've done that and how it's influenced you know your work mm, um nice. not just like your own life experience but also the way it's gonna you know help clients so michael thank you so much for being on the show this is yeah, awesome and, yeah uh, looking forward to doing another one soon definitely appreciate you Thank you so much for listening. You've just listened to an episode where I got to talk about all my favorite things with a person who I truly care about. Martial arts, psychology, spirituality, philosophy, all of that is on my list of favorites. So I'm really glad that I got to have this conversation and that I got to share it with you. And if you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and share it with a friend. If there's something in here that inspired you, leave us a comment. Let us know what you think and leave a review. 
Liking, sharing, and subscribing is how the show grows. So thank you so much for your contribution, for your engagement. And if you want to reach out to Michael, his links are in the show notes. And if you want to reach out to me and let me know what you thought about this episode, or if you have any questions, please feel free to message me at victor.zenstoic on Instagram.